Just a heads up, y'all. The following episode contains some salty language, so buckle up for some cussing. What's good, y'all? I'm Gene Tembe, and this is Code Switch from NPR. Oh my God, it's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you. I'm excited to be back here with y'all in the little NPR booth, literally in the NPR booth for the first time in two years. I've missed y'all, but I'm not actually hosting today's episode, even though I'm like back in this chair thing, because today we're actually turning things over to two very capable play cousins of ours who just co-hosted our latest live show. What is up, Code Switch family? <laughs> welcome, welcome. I am your co-host, Denise Froman. And I'm Aisha Roscoe, and this is Code Switch Live. Y'all have heard Denise and Aisha on the podcast before. Denise is a writer and a poet. She's been on the show talking about language and identity and hooping. She used to be a professional basketball player. And who should be able to use the word John, which is close to home for me as a Philadelphian. And Aisha is NPR's White House correspondent. Y'all remember, she's been on the show before to talk about President Trump and how he tweeted about race. Aisha was out there doing God's work. Anyway, I was out, and they hosted a live Code Switch show about everything from poetry to comedy to romance. The show was virtual, so that applause you're hearing is not not real, it's fake. I mean, we get real love, you know what I'm saying? But this is not real love. The show is real. The show is real. I know, I watched it. I I was in the galley. During the show, they answered listener questions about romance. They spoke to the comedian Hare Kondabolu. He's been on the podcast himself a group of times. But first, they chopped it up with a very exciting poet named Paul Tran. Here's Denise. Paul Tran came up through the New Yorican Poets Cafe, which is where I also got my start. They were the first Asian American since 1993 and the first trans poet to ever win the New Yorican Poets Grand Slam. And their debut collection, All the Flowers Kneeling, is coming out in February. But you are about to hear a sneak peek of some of it right now. This is Paul Tran, and I'm reading my poem, Lipstick Elegy. I climb down to the ocean, facing out on the Pacific, where torrents of rain shur the sand. On the other side, my grandmother slept soundlessly in her bed, her alyai of the whitest silk. My mother knew her mother died long before the telephone rang like bells announcing the last American helicopter leaving Saigon. Arrow shot back to its bow, long distance missile. I know she'd fly home if she could. She works overtime instead, curls her hair with hat rollers, rouges her cheeks like Gong Li and raise the red lantern. And I, I'm her understudy, hiding in the doorways between her grief and mine. I apply her foundation to my face, conceal the parts of me that she conceals, puckering my lips as if to kiss a man who would love me the way I want to be loved. And I said, oh, there be witching names allowed. Twisted Rose, Fuchsia in Paris, Irreverence. 
I picked the lipstick she would least approve, wrapped a white towel around my waist, checked my reflection in a charred skillet. I laughed her laugh, the way my grandmother used to laugh when she was alive, when she taught me to pray from the Hudai B, when I braided her hair in the unbearable heat, my tiny fingers weaving each silver strand into a fishtail, a French twist, each knot, another child she ha, never got to name. I'm sorry. Mother of my mother, immortal Buddha with a thousand hands, chewing a fist, a beetle root, your teeth black as dawn, no child. In our family stays a child their mother can love. Woof. Yes. That was so incredibly beautiful. Paul, thank you so much for being here. It is such a treat to have you. Oh my gosh, thank you to you both. It is such an honor to be here with you. So I'd like to start things off. Uh, tell us, why did you choose that poem, which was so moving, so vulnerable, such a, a, a celebration of, of queerness, but also a, a complicated narrative as well around family. Uh, why did you pick that poem to share with us tonight? The poems in my first collection, All the Flowers Kneeling, they come out of my experience as a rape survivor. That word rape and the word trauma do not appear in this collection at all. Instead, this is a book about survival. It's a book about love and it's a book about the love that is required for a queer and trans descendant of Vietnamese refugees to redefine survival on their own terms. And this poem appears at the very end of the second section of the book after I tell my mother what has happened to me. And because she's unable to accept it, because her method of survival is to pretend that bad things, you know, didn't happen, hmm. I have to embark on my journey alone to save myself. And so um, it's a poem both about what's given up, but also about what's reclaimed. Hmm. And, and and that last line, no child in our family stays a child their mother can love. Like that is, I mean, it, it, it almost cuts like a knife, but there is so much, there's so, there's something so, there's so much depth there and also pain. I guess, what were you thinking when you were being a vessel for that language, for this story? Like, what was that like for you? Aisha, that's a great question. I feel like in every parent-child relationship, the child ultimately grows up to become their own person. Mm. And for me, that meant embracing my queerness, my transness, the fact that I want to face history head on. And my mother had to leave her mother to escape Vietnam and come to United States. And I had to leave her in a sense in order to pursue my own freedom. But I'm hoping that one day, I don't know, one day we can see that we did, We we did what we had to do to be free and to give ourselves a second chance to live and to hopefully to hopefully return to each other hmm. and once again that was paul tran their new collection is called all the flowers kneeling thanks again to them all right, y'all. So we are so excited to introduce our next guest, though for many of you, he probably needs no introduction. 
That's right, Aisha. We have Hari Kondabolu, who is a comedian, actor, podcast host, filmmaker. He's also been on the podcast before for one of the show's most controversial episodes to date, which you can be sure we are going to talk about. We'll get into it. And a lot of Hurry's comedy is about race and identity and stereotypes. Here's one of my favorite clips from his Netflix special. Can't believe this shit. Can't believe we left to talk about white supremacy. We have to deal with this shit, man. Because here's the thing. Race is made-up bullshit, right? Racism's real. The stuff that, you know, happens because of the made-up bullshit. Race is made-up bullshit. Think about it. I'm black. I'm Asian. I'm a color. I'm a landmass. Like, it doesn't even equate, man. <laughs> like, white people? White people's not a real thing. White people's made up. There was a time when the Polish weren't white, when the Italians weren't white, when the Jews weren't white, when the Irish weren't white. There used to be signs that said, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs. No dogs! <laughs> Do you know what that means? Cats are white people. And of course they are. Selfish and pretend they don't need you. And then they use you. And then they lick themselves. Oh, I've seen the videos. I know what's going on. Cats are white people. I'm joking. That's absurd. That's absurd. Cats, cats are not white people. I'm joking. Cats are not white people. Because then I'd own a cat. I'm, jo I'm joking. Come on. That's ridiculous. I'm joking. Cats are not white people. Dogs are white people because they can't see color. <laughs> All right, folks, without further ado, let's bring Hurry on. Oh, here hey, I am. Hello. Are you well? We are well. We're, we're doing this show. We're making it happen, you know? Good, good. Super excited to have you on. I wanted to start out by talking about that clip. Like, I mean, first of all, it's really, really funny. Um, but I wanted to, obviously, you talk a lot about race in your comedy. Like, how do you decide how to approach that? And, like, are you ever afraid yeah. that people won't get the intention of the joke? Like, they'll they'll really think that you think white people are cats. Um, and, and also, how do you know when a joke has gone too far? Um... Let, let's let's start in reverse order. Okay. You know a joke has gone too far uh, when uh, people are emailing you after the show and are upset, um, and 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 they're and they're if they're white, that means the joke worked. But if uh, they're <laughs> anyone who's marginalized in any way, then you start to realize, okay, this didn't do what I wanted it to do, and that kind of connects to the intention question, like. It, to me, it's really important that people laugh because they got the point. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I don't want them to laugh because they misunderstood. You know, and you can't guarantee that. You can never guarantee that. But I, I try to be as clear as I can. Yet at the same time, I feel like my job as a comedian is to make as many people laugh as possible, and not just like the people that like my stuff and have seen me before, but even people who might disagree with my politics or my views on uh, uh, on race and, and oppression, like still I got to find a way to pull laughs from them. So, you know, to me, you know, sometimes it's about creating tension 
and then and discomfort and then having the punchline land so like all of a sudden it's a bigger like you ba i basically held off the laughter until the end and all of a sudden it's like oh my god that's that's great he got out of it or i like to kind of um you know like with th with that clip you know find a way to be as as silly as possible cats are white people like it's just a ridiculous thing <laughs> and then i have two punchlines at the end that are you know a little bit sharper and maybe a little meaner but it's also my way of um getting you know because some la some of that stuff i think is cathartic and understood by people who deal with oppression and they laugh in a way that like connects on a deeper level some of it i think are for folks who understand white folks who like understand the ideas and they think it's really funny but maybe don't connect directly to it you know and there's some that you know those punchlines aren't going to work but there's other punchlines before that will when you talk about race, like people often do get like worked up, get upset. Um, and actually, Harry, um, you, you almost got the entire Cold Switch podcast canceled. I don't know if you <laughs> after you appeared on the show. I heard about that. Ago. <laughs> um, it was the explanatory comma episode. Um, and in it, like you talked to Shireen and Jean about how much people of color should have to explain themselves to white people. And right. the team tells me that a lot of people, maybe a lot of white people, were not pleased with what you said. I was said. about to say, which people? Which people didn't like it? C certain people. Okay. Well, like look. What you uh, had to say. Like, how, what are your thoughts about that now? Pissing off the whites in a race podcast? I think I did my job. <laughs> I don't understand what the issue is. Uh, I, I, You know, <laughs> annoying white liberals who don't want to confront certain things. I, I think... That's that's okay, you know. It's it's a it, it's it's a it's a confusing and frustrating thing, right? Because you when you want to reach as many people as possible, like I was saying with comedy, you need to explain enough where they get it. At the same time, as a member of a marginalized group whose references are constantly like not known because people don't care about our cultures and our art and our our ideas in the same way, unless they can monetize it, right? It's frustrating to have to explain things when we have to learn mainstream white culture. We have to learn it to function. We have to learn to get jobs. We need to learn it to communicate with you. We have to, it's, that's what it is. And especially growing up, yeah, it's, it's, it's gotten so much better, but growing up, like when I'm watching uh, film and television, like I don't see myself, I have to relate to white people and see their humanity just so I can enjoy television and film. They don't have to do the same thing with us. So I think part of it is just the frustration of I got to explain everything. I never can be completely free because the white gaze is always on me. And I don't want to deal with that. You know what I mean? Sometimes you just want to yeah. be free. So, I mean, practically, I get it. I practically understand why you would have to. But at the same time, I'm like, Google exists and you can <laughs> figure things out in the context of a conversation. Do you know why I know that? Because I've had to figure things out in the context of a conversation. Like, oh, I don't know what the Cape is. Oh, it seems like a place they vacation. Okay, that's where, that's where they go <laughs> yes. to vacation. It's yes. in Massachusetts somewhere. Oh, I yes. understood. And some conversations are not for everybody, right? Like mm -hmm. sometimes you just got to sit back and go, okay, I don't really know what they're talking about. So yeah. let me just be quiet. But some people don't like to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, which is strange. It's like, 
I, I'm upset that I don't understand the reference in this free podcast. I, I, this thing I didn't pay anything for, and that might not have been for me exactly. And, and therefore, it's not good, right? Therefore, it, it's not good. Um, so, so hurry, I was interested in in sort of your thoughts about, um, you know, comedy and, and more broadly how you see sort of what the point of comedy is for you. you touched on it a little bit earlier, but mm. as sort of a, a poet who some people think is a, a comedian, though I'm not holding up the craft very well, um, you know, there's a lot of semblance. You talked about tension. Yeah. Yeah. I think your turns are are just impeccable. You don't give the audience what they want or, or what they expect. So I, I was curious what your sort of how you see, you know, the point of, of comedy, uh, at least for you. Um, first of all, let me say that sometimes, you know, I feel like a poet up there when the punchlines don't land. Um, so I completely understand when it's just a series of well-written statements. Um, <laughs> it, uh, no questions, just statements. <laughs> and with my fans, the thing with my fans is when that happens, most audiences just stay quiet and it's awkward. My fans start snapping. They start doing things that make me yeah. feel even less like a comedian. I'm wondering um, if your fans are at my shows and my fans. Oh, are yeah, absolutely. Be because absolutely. they're laughing during the serious parts for me. and I'm really confused. <laughs> well, that's absolutely. Absolutely. It's definitely the same. It's the same. It's the same demographic. Um and 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 God bless them, and I'll continue to take their money. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, for me, the, the point is to make people laugh in a way that is honest with who I am and what I believe in. Like, you know, to me, the goal isn't to change people's hearts and minds. Like, I go into this because I I want to make art that makes people laugh. I want to be good at this craft. Now, the thing to me is, um, I feel. Like as a human being, I want to nourish myself with good documentaries, with good people who educate me, with good books. I want to, I want to be the most thoughtful person I can be. I want to live, you know, a, a just life. So my standup is going to reflect my belief system. So I want to be as um, unapologetically me as I possibly can, and be as funny as I can. It, you know, I try to keep it simple. Thank you so much for joining oh. us. Like this has yes, been thank you, a great pleasure. conversation. Yeah, absolute pleasure. All right, y'all. When we come back, Denise and Aisha are going to answer some listener questions about race and romance. And stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Russell's Reserve. Russell's Reserve is all about family. That's the inspiration behind their saying, reserved for all, because great bourbon should be enjoyed by anyone and everyone. Russell's Reserve 10-year-old bourbon is aged to perfection and delicious no matter how you like to drink it. Gather with the ones you love and order from Drizzly today. Russell's Reserve, 45% alcohol by volume, 90 proof, 2020 Campari America, New York, New York. Please drink responsibly. Gene. Just Gene for now. Code Switch. And we are back with more from Code Switch's most recent live show. I'm going to turn it back over to Denise Froman and Aisha Roscoe, who took on the very brave task of answering your very spicy questions about race and love. Here's Denise again. 
It's about to get messy. Okay. Yes. We're about to jump into one of my favorite segments. It's called Ask Code Switch. It's where we get all up in your business and answer your deepest, most pressing, burning questions about race. This time, the theme is race and romance. Aisha, which one of us picked that theme? I think both of us picked it. I mean, hopefully we won't both be regretting it by the end of it. But I think I think it was both of <laughs> us in on this. Yeah. Yes. Um, so our, our first question comes from a listener who is having some frustrating experiences on dating apps. Let's hear it. Hey, Code Switch. My name is Neil Chowdhury. I'm calling from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm 28 years old. As a gay multiracial, that's white and South Asian man, I get asked constantly, what race am I on dating apps and on first dates when I'm connecting with people? Uh, this happens so much that I actually start dreading, wondering when the question will come up at some point. And even sometimes when I connect with South Asian men, um, I'll get asked to send more photos of myself or asked um, different questions about South Asia. I'm wondering if there's a standard response that I can give people um, who bring up my race before I'm ready to talk about it. Um, I'm thinking something friendly and firm and warm to kind of keep the conversation going um, and not having it be a hard stop. Okay, so, well, first of all, Neil is cute. He's a cutie pie. So Very I cute. Think I, I've been married for a decade, um, Denise, but, um, so I'm not on a date now, but I think you swipe right. Do you swipe right when you like the person? Uh, according <laughs> to my partner, I don't know. I don't know about those okay, apps. Okay, okay. See, I know nothing her, of the sort. Okay, her partner is on here, so she's not saying. Okay, that's good, because you're not supposed to know. You're not supposed to know. I actually um, really don't know, though, uh, <laughs> in real life. I really don't know. <laughs> whatever, you're supposed to swipe whatever. Whatever ways to swipe to approve. If y'all see Neil, swipe, because, you know, he's a cutie pie, but he got a real question. But, Denise, I think that you would be able to to kind of start off, get some thoughts on this. Yes. So as a fellow multicultural, I'd like to weigh in here because I feel you, Neil. I feel you. It's something that I like to call the biracial blues or the quote unquote mixed blues. This sort of expectation that you have to prove who you are or be in some existential crisis about your identity. I've had some version of this question thrown at me more times than I can count growing up as someone I've with- I've been asking, but they weren't asking for pictures of you, not to cut you off. They weren't asking you for like more pictures. No, I was Ooh, 10. I was 10, Aisha. <laughs> I hope they weren't asking for pictures. <laughs> My mom would run down with a tancleta so fast. Uh, <laughs> so, as, I, but as someone with both Puerto Rican and, and Jewish parents, it, you know, this is a question that I got asked a lot, right? Like the "Am I Latino enough?" question, right? The the "Am I," which is also the "Am I Asian enough?" game, or "Am I Black enough?" game, or even "Gay enough?" game, right? When someone is is trying to size you up and and really essentialize you, and this is how we've been taught to talk about race. But here's the thing. Identity isn't a test. It's not a pop quiz. These are our lived experiences. And sometimes they're nuanced and messy. And, and we have different proximities to our racial and cultural identities, especially if you're multiracial. Uh, in fact, more than 33 million Americans, uh, about one in 10, identify as being of two or more races. That's a number that grew by more than 23 million people in the past decade, according to the 2020 census. So I'm glad 
this question came up because it's not going anywhere. And I agree with Neil. Uh, it's normal for questions of identity and race to come up, uh, you know, in, in the, the course of a conversation to build connection, get to know someone you're interested in, I don't know, taking to a Taylor Swift concert, uh, but, or Beyonce, Beyonce. or Beyonce, yeah. uh, the queen, <laughs> but, but it's, it's how the question is asked that I think matters most. There's a difference, right, Aisha, between getting to know someone and then sort of fetishizing them based on their race. Yes. I mean, you I, I, you have to interrogate the interrogator, right? Like, why are you asking me this question? Why does this matter to you? Like, when you're asking me, are you trying to just get to know me? Are you just trying to find out more about me, more about what we may have in common? Or are you trying to check these boxes that you have set up in your mind that you think I have to meet for us to be together? So I, it requires some more conversation, right? Yeah, it requires more conversation. Like if, you know, especially if so, you get the sense someone's trying to decide if you are too much of something or not enough of a thing, like, if you're asking me to like send you pictures of my spice cabinet and count like how many adobos I have or ask me how many Mark Anthony songs I've downloaded, it's a lot. Um, but that's not the point. That's a red flag. You should red probably flag. swipe left. So, Neil, <laughs> I, I jotted some notes down for you because you asked for some advice and a quick response. So here we go. Uh, Neil, you can just say, and you can tell them, I, 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 you can quote me on this if you want to. I'll take yes. all the hate mail. Um <laughs> Just say, I'm happy to talk about my cultural identity if you're interested in getting to know me, but your question feels like a test. I'm proud of my heritage, but I also don't feel the need to prove anything. So Neil, if you're out there, if you're listening, please don't give up on love. Trust that someone will come along, hold your hand and offer the widest door to walk through. All right, up next. We have a question that I personally do have a lot of thoughts about. And this one is actually from a couple, not from an individual. So listen to what they got to say. Hi all, my name's Owen and I'm 37 years old. And I'm Awa and I'm 34 years old and we live in Atlanta, Georgia. My wife and I are in an interracial relationship. I'm a white man. And I'm a black woman. We've noticed over the past several years that more and more of our specific pairing has appeared on commercials, despite the fact that white men and black women are one of the rarest interracial pairings. Well, it's nice to be represented. I can't help but think something else is going on here. So the question was, why are there so many interracial couples with a white man and a black woman in commercials? Yeah. And Aisha, I know that you have many, many thoughts about this question. So why don't you kick things off for us and uh, jump right in? I do. And I mean, some of this is just speculation on my part. But, you know, I mean, I can speculate. I think I got <laughs> I think I got some insights. Um, there hasn't been like a comprehensive study. Um, about this, but most smaller surveys have found that interracial couples in general are far, far more common on TV and in advertisements than they are in real life. Um, and also, I mean, because the fact is like Black women in, in particular are the least likely to marry outside their race. Black men are also not likely to marry outside their race, but they do do it more often than Black women. That's a conversation for another day. We will set that aside. 
But I think what is happening with these commercials is that you have these companies, right? And there was a great awakening. There was, you know, there was this whole thing. We had to be more diverse. We have to be more progressive. And so they want to to show a little symbolic move towards that. So what they do is they put a, a white man with a very um, racially ambiguous black woman. So it's not just any black woman. It's a racially ambiguous black woman. So they sprinkle a little flavor in there. So you can look at it and you, you squint your eye and you're like, her hair's a little curly. She ain't white. So this is diversity. Is it like the, the salt bay of diversity? It's, it's is just it a little diversity sprinkle. bay? Just they drop they drop a little sprinkle in there, and then it's like, okay, we did look, we did our job. We brought something in. It's a little different. Um, the reason why I think you don't see as many like a black man with a white woman is because historically there have been a lot more reservations or a lot of reservations about black men and white women. Like there's a deep historical anxiety around that. Um, and the, the idea of black men and white women is a little bit more loaded. So if you do a white man with a racially ambiguous black woman, you get diversity without having to like fully have to be like diverse. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and you bring up a really interesting point about brands and corporations, sort of how they respond or how they're responding to the racial reckoning and the greater calls for uh, uh, social justice, uh, you know, really calling out white supremacy. And so these days, brands don't really have a choice uh, to stay silent, right? I mean, even today, Aisha, M&M's <laughs> announced <laughs> that they yeah. are trying to be more inclusive. <laughs> the green one is now going to rock sneakers, sneakers. Uh, instead of high heels. Um, and then they're going <laughs> to make sure that the two women M&M's, the green and I believe the brown one, are, are going to get along now and stop being so catty. Um <laughs> <laughs> so we got M&M's trying to do better, okay? They um, try, you know, they're trying to step it up. I don't know why the sneakers make it inclusive. I don't know what they're include. They're chocolatey candy that melts I, I, in your mouth and not in your hands. Like, okay, what is, I, how can that be inclusive? I, 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 I love M&M's, but I, I, I also hear your point, okay? <laughs> I, I think it's it, it brings up the idea of, like, brand and, brand and corporations, like, their idea of diversity mm -hmm. is one thing. And then the community, like communities call, like activist communities who are calling for representation in front and behind the screen, uh, a greater calls for access and equity. Like those are two very different things. And so I was interested in your thoughts on sort of the commercialization of diversity, right? What you talked about, Diversity Bay, uh, Salt Bay, and how <laughs> brands are giving us just a slice, a sliver of ourselves and calling it a good day. Well, it's kind of like an inherent conflict because their job is not to advance society or civilization, right? Like if you are M&M's, your job is to sell M&M's. You want to get people to spend their money on your candy. You want people to spend money on whatever your product is. That's your job. That's your goal. Um, and so when you try to marry it with this, you know, sort of noble goal, um, there's still this thought about the bottom line. And 
there is still clearly a view that when you look, and, and we've talked about this throughout now, Hurry was talking about this, this idea that you have, you know, white is thought of as the neutral thing, as the thing for everybody. So if I see a commercial with white people, I don't think, oh, that's just for white people. I think that's a commercial. But there's this idea that if you see a commercial with a person of color in it and only people of color, then you go, if it's black people, you think, well, that's supposed to be on BET. That's they trying to sell a car to black people. They're not trying to sell that car to, <laughs> to me if you're not black. Like there's this thing where, as Hurry said so eloquently, where it's like you're otherized, you're, you're put into a, a less humane uh, part because you are not what is supposed to be the, the neutral thing. And that companies are not really willing to shake that up. Like they're not, because if they were, they would book anybody for the roles and then they would just sell the, the daggone cars, right? Right, <laughs> like they, right. They wouldn't have to be so specific in the casting, right? Yeah, and and Owen and and Alwa's question rem actually reminded me of a, a New York Times article that you you brought up to me the other day uh, about. <laughs> well, why don't you go ahead and explain it uh, what, to folks? It's, it's, I mean, a lot. We got a lot of questions, and I think that this really kind of got to the heart of it. Like, we got a lot of questions about interracial dating, and some of we them did. were about people who weren't dating who were dating outside of their race and they were concerned about it because they felt like, well, maybe I should date within my race. And then there were other people who were concerned about them making a fetish out of the people um, that they were going after who were not a part of their race. And then there were other people who were worried about becoming the fetish. And so it was all about like being yourself in relationships. And there was this New York Times story a few weeks ago about these interracial couples and it was Black people in these interracial relationships um, who felt like they couldn't be their complete and whole selves. So you had a black woman who would not listen to soul music with her white partner. She did not let her white partner see her natural curly hair for like the first six months. <laughs> she kept her wow. hair braids. She did not, um, what else is, she did not speak uh, African-American vernacular English. So really? no Ebonics. And like, hmm. like I said, no soul music. So no Teddy P. No, no Teddy, Teddy P. No, how do you, how do you be in love and you won't pay Luther Vandross? How you, I don't think you're in love. I, I think you? that's not love. I don't I mean, <laughs> I mean, you, you're, you're right. Like, but let's keep the, like sort of the focus on where I think we need to put some of that, that blame, right. Is on white supremacy and yes. beauty standards. Right. Um, yes. And, and sort of, this is straight from a page of like the playbook of white supremacy and sort of yes. uh, centering a particular culture and sort of ostracizing or marginalizing uh, cultures that, you know, so many of us are, are, you know, very close to and intimately connected to. And so like, I'm with you, Aisha. If I can't wake up in the morning, you know, and have my cafecito and, you know, if I can't yo no se mañana into lunch, if I can't vivir mi vida, you know, I have I have a problem. You know, mm -hmm. th that's also a red flag. Um, yes. We, we have to bring <sighs> our full selves. Right. Like, that's the thing. Like, whatever you do, whoever you love. You should be able to bring your full self and be accepted and to be loved unconditionally. That is what love is, right? Listen, yeah, that's and what Aisha, love is. I feel like we are going to liberate some folks tonight. People are Tomorrow, free. People get set free right now. <laughs>
play Luther, play Teddy P, play Mark Anthony and Luis Enrique, and, you know, uh, Oscar yes. de Leon. Okay, go, yes. go play your salsa and your R&B, all right? We done set you free. And I also think that we have solved love. We have. I think we solved, we solved love and we solved race. Yes, we, we did. did. Yes, we Work did. Work is done. <laughs> All right, y'all. That is our show. It was even better live. So the next time we have a live show, y'all should come through. It's literally like coming through means like pulling up your laptop or your phone and just like watching <laughs> with headphones on. Anyway, in the meantime, we want to hear from y'all. Email us at codeswitch at npr.org. Follow us on Twitter and IG. We're at NPR Codeswitch on both those platforms. And subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletters. This show was produced by Leah Danella with help from Summer Tamad, Jess Kung, and our intern Nathan Pugh. It was edited by Leah and Steve Drummond. And a huge thank you to NPR's events team for making all this happen, especially Leah Crockett, Gianna Cappadonna, Jessica Goldstein, and John Isabella. And we would be remiss if we did not shout out the rest of the Code Switch Massive. Karen Grigsby-Bates, Alyssa Jong-Perry, Christina Kala, and Kumari Devarajan. Our art director is L.A. Johnson. And once again... Our hosts for the evening were Denise Froman and Aisha Roscoe. As for me, I'm Gene Dumby. Be easy, y'all.